Section 18 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18. Concerning the Agency of God in Carrying on the Work of Redemption, and the Manner in which that Agency is Exerted. God having thus devised the plan, and manifested the truth, and instituted the means of redemption, the inquiry naturally presents itself, in what way would he put the plan into operation, and give efficiency to the means of grace? We cannot suppose that God would put his own institution beyond his power, or that he would leave it to be managed by the imperfect wisdom and the limited power of human instruments. God would not prepare the material, devise the plan, adapt the parts to each other, furnish the instruments for building, and then neglect to supervise and complete the structure. God has put none of his works beyond his power, and especially in a plan of which he is the author and architect, reason suggests that he would guide it to its accomplishment. The inquiry is, by what agency, and in what way, would the power of God be exerted in carrying into efficient operation upon the souls of men the system of saving mercy? In relation to the character of the agency, the solution is clear. The agency by which the plan of salvation would be carried forward to its ultimate consummation would be spiritual in its nature, because God is a spirit, and the soul of man is a spirit, and the end to be accomplished is to lead men to worship God in spirit and in truth. In relation to the mode of the Spirit's operation, some things belong to that class of inquiries upon which the mind may exert its powers in vain. The mode by which God communicates life to anything in the vegetable, animal, or spiritual world lies beyond the reach of the human intellect. But although man cannot understand the modus operandi of the divine mind in communicating life, yet the manifestations of life, and the medium through which it operates, are subjects open to human examination. Whether the influence of the spirit be directly upon the soul, or mediately by means of truth, the end accomplished would be the same. The soul might be quickened to see and feel the power of the truth, or, by the spirit, truth might be rendered powerful to affect the soul. The wax might be softened to receive the impression, or the seal heated, or a power exerted upon it, to make the impression upon the wax. Or, both might be done, and still the result would be the same. It is not only necessary that the metal should be prepared to receive the impression of a dye, but it is likewise necessary that the dye should be prepared and adapted to the particular kind of metal, the image and superscription of the king put upon it, the machinery prepared and adapted to hold the dye and apply it to the metal, and after all these necessary things are done, the coin can never be made unless power is exerted to strike the dye into the metal, or the metal into the dye. So it is in the processes of the spiritual world. The material, mankind, must be prepared. The dye, the truth of the gospel system, must be revealed and adapted to the material and the image to be impressed upon human nature, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the superscription, glory to God and good will to men, must be cut upon the die. Then the means of bringing the truth into contact with the material must be provided. 
and after all these preparations and adaptations, there must be the power of the Holy Spirit to guide the whole process, and to form the image of Christ in the soul. The foregoing is a complicated analogy, but not more complicated than are the processes of the animal and spiritual world. Look at the human body, with its thousands of adaptations, all of them necessary to the system, the whole dependent upon the use of means for the supply of animal life, and yet deriving from God its rational life which operates through and actuates the whole. In like manner the Spirit of God operates through and guides the processes of the plan of salvation. The scriptures reveal the truth clearly that the Spirit of God gives efficiency to the means of grace. And not only this, but he operates in accordance with those necessary principles which have been developed in the progress of these chapters. Christ instructed his disciples to expect that he would send the Holy Spirit, and when he is come, said Jesus, quote, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, end quote. That is, the Holy Spirit will produce conviction of sin in the hearts of the unsanctified and impenitent. The office work of the Spirit of God in relation to the world is to convince of sin. In relation to the saints, he exercises a different office. He is their comforter. He takes of the things that belong to Jesus and shows them to his people. Footnote, John 16, 7-14. footnote. That is, he causes the people of God to see more and more of the excellency and the glory and the mercy manifested in a crucified Saviour. And by this blessed influence they grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ, by his ministry and death, furnished the facts necessary for human salvation. The Holy Spirit uses those facts to convict and sanctify the heart. Paul, in a passage already noticed, alludes to the influence of the Spirit operating by the appointed means of prayer or devout meditation. Quote, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. End quote. Further, at what juncture in the progress of the great plan of salvation would this agency be most powerfully exerted? We answer, at the time when the whole moral machinery of the dispensation, through which the effect was to be produced, was completed. Whatever is designed and adapted to produce a definite result as an instrument, must be completed before it is put into operation, otherwise it will not produce the definite effect required. An imperfect system put into operation would produce an imperfect result. Here a special effect was to be produced. It was necessary, therefore, that the truth should be revealed, and the manifestations all made, before the power was imparted to give them effect. Under the new dispensation, the greatest and most imposing manifestations were the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Had the system been put into operation before these crowning manifestations were made, the great end of the gospel would not have been accomplished. It follows, then, that the material would be first prepared, the manifestations made and adapted to the material, the appropriate means ordained, and then the agency of the Spirit would be introduced to guide the dispensation to its ultimate triumphs, 
and to give efficiency to its operations. These deductions harmonize with the teachings of the scriptures. First, they expressly teach that without the agency of God, no perfect result is accomplished. Second, they everywhere represent that the divine agency is exerted through the truth upon the soul, or exerted to waken the soul to comprehend and receive the truth. Third, the spirit was not fully communicated until the whole economy of the gospel dispensation was completed. The apostles were instructed to assemble at Jerusalem after the ascension, and wait till they were endued with power from on high. On the day of Pentecost, the promised spirit descended. The apostles at once perceived the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. They spoke in demonstration of the spirit and with power. Men were convicted of sin in their hearts. Sinners were converted to Christ by repentance and faith. And under the guidance of that divine spirit, the plan of salvation moves on to its high and glorious consummation when the, quote, kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. End, End of section 18.